And if you can't believe what God said about the creation of the world, then why should you believe what he said about the creation of marriage? And so we live in a day where there's a spirit of unbelief that is filling not just our nation, but our world. And Satan knows if he can wreck our homes, he can ruin our churches. And that if he can ruin our churches, he can destroy our nation. And certainly if he destroys this nation that is led in the proclamation of the gospel for 150 years, that last bright vestige of truth will be gone. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a special series of messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy over the last two years. Today's sermon is titled, A Marriage Made in Heaven. Pastor Carl will be addressing the basic theology of marriage as a divine institution from the book of Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Please join us now in Genesis chapter 2 as we begin. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 2. I thought about maybe changing the message, but no, I said I'm going to preach this. God's given it to me, and I will address in a later message some of the things that are going on and how we can have a biblical perspective. Genesis chapter 2. You know, the Bible tells us if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The present moral and social decline in our day is direct directly related to our rejection of God in his holy, infallible word. And if you know anything about the book of Genesis, you know it is the number one attacked book in all of the Bible. And Satan knows that if he can get you to question one part of the Bible, he can get you to question all of the Bible. That if you have to reinterpret the historicity of Genesis, then you can easily reinterpret the morality that is unfolded in Genesis. Satan is so slick. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. And if you can't believe what God said about the creation of the world, then why should you believe what he said about the creation of marriage? And so we live in a day where there's a spirit of unbelief that is filling not just our nation, but our world. And Satan knows if he can wreck our homes, he can ruin our churches. And that if he can ruin our churches, he can destroy our nation. And certainly if he destroys this nation that is led in the proclamation of the gospel for 150 years, that last bright vestige of truth will be gone. God is a home builder. The devil is a home wrecker. Here we are in the book of Barashit. It means in Hebrew, in the beginning. It's genesios in, in Greek. It means beginning. This is the book of beginnings. And if you know anything about Genesis, you know, at least in kernel form, all of the great truths of all of the doctrines of Scripture are found right here in this book. So I want to begin reading Genesis 2. Follow along in your Bible, starting now in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. That was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This was a very beautiful marriage when it began. And they had, I suppose, some advantages that you and I do not have today. For instance, Adam never had to hear Eve say, you're not the only man I could have married. (laughs) And certainly Eve never had to hear Adam say, why don't you cook like my mother? Or when I was a boy. No, he married the most beautiful woman in the world. And all joking aside, what we find here in Genesis chapter 2 is God's structure on what a healthy marriage should look like. This is a familiar text of Scripture. And if you slide into, I've read this a thousand times, and you've slid it into pride and arrogance, and you've become an unteachable person. We need to know God's truth thoroughly. Because if the average evangelical knew God's truth and was living God's truth and teaching God's truth, our nation would not be in the mess that it is. In 1920, one in 100 marriages ended in divorce. In 2020, approximately 50 out of 100 end in divorce. And the evangelical record is not that much different from the people of the world. So this is a very important foundational passage on what God says on marriage, and it is habitually quoted in the New Testament both by Jesus and the apostles. It's basic theology on marriage. And theology is important because theology is a reflection of what God is like. And when we understand theology, when we understand what we believe, then we know so much better how it is that we are to behave. And so I want us to observe, first of all, that marriage is made by God the Father. Three critical principles that I want us to think through. First, that marriage is made by God the Father. We often refer to marriage as a divine institution, and that's correct. But what do we mean by a divine institution? Divine institution is a principle that is established or ordained by God for the purpose of preserving and protecting the entire human race. And there are three such divine institutions that God himself started. First, there is marriage, or what we might call the family. Second, there is a system of worship. And third, there is what we call government. God established these three institutions, the family, the church, and the government, to help us to live in this world. But before God ever established the government, before God ever established a system of worship, the very first institution that God established is that of the family. So let's carefully think through this first theological principle that marriage is made by God the Father. First, I want you to notice that God planned a bride for Adam. We're told here in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I'm looking across the page here in my Bible, and it's interesting to think about how the creation unfolded. God made the land, and he called it the earth. He made the waters, and he called it the sea. And in Genesis 1.10, he says it was good. Then God made the plants and all the fruit-bearing trees and all the vegetation, and God said 
in Genesis 1.12, it was good. Then he made the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets, and we're told in Genesis 1.18, then God said it was good. Then God made everything that moved in the sea and all the birds that fly in the air, and in Genesis 1.21, God said it is good. Then God made the animals, and he made all the creeping things, and again in Genesis 1.23, he declares it was good. And then God makes the pinnacle of his creation when he made Adam, who is different from the animal world. We are not some sophisticated, highly evolved two-legged animal. God breathed into man the breath of life. Only people have the capacity or the desire to pray, to worship God, because we uniquely are made in the image of God. And after God creates Adam, God declares here in Genesis 1.31, it was very good. But then for the first time in the creation account, man is without a woman, and God says it is not good. And he reminds us of two very different views concerning the creation of a man and a woman and why it is not good. Why does God say it is not good? One woman quipped, well, God made the man, and he thought, well, I can do better than that, so he made the woman. But obviously... That's not the reason. And it's not, too, that God had some afterthought. Oops, I forgot to make a woman. God has no afterthoughts. God is omniscient. He is immutable. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as we will see in our study, one of the reasons God did not create Eve at the same time that he created Adam is because he wanted to reveal a very critical truth to Adam about his wife and to all of us here listening today about marriage itself. Again, in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The aloneness of man was a bad thing. In fact, in the Hebrew text, the word not good is emphatic. There's ways in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. I've only learned Hebrew and Greek. I don't know Aramaic, but there's only a few chapters that are written in Aramaic. But you can underscore, highlight, mark in red through grammatical structure. And literally, the Hebrew text says, not good for the man to be alone. This was not a good thing in God's eyes. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, this is what I'm going to do. I will make him a helper suitable, an ezeneged, a helper suitable for him. And the word that God uses here for helper suitable is a Hebrew word that means someone who helps or completes or fulfills something else. It's the counterpart that Adam did not yet have. Now, Adam was alone. He was incomplete, the text is reminding us. He was in isolation. He's isolated in the midst of absolute perfection. And so it's important for us to understand that God planned a bride for Adam, that this was not some afterthought. This was God's plan from the beginning. And so secondly, not only did he plan a bride for Adam, God provided a bride from Adam. God provided a bride from Adam. We are told now in verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name and it stuck. 
Now, I know it's popular today to think that, you know, way back then, you know, Adam must have been, if he ever existed, some kind of caveman, you know, some kind of knuckle-dragging ignoramus. But the truth is, is that people prior to the fall were a whole lot smarter than we are. Adam was not some slow, dumb, stupid man. The fact is, is that he had to name all the animals. Oh, that's a hippopotamus. That's a giraffe. And then he had to remember the name. He was no idiot. He's a lot smarter than most of us prior to the fall. And so we're told in verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to the every beast of the field. But, uh-oh, for Adam, there was not found an Ezeneged, a helper suitable to complete him, a helper suitable for him. So why in the middle of this section on marriage does God bring up this thing about naming all the animals? Because God wanted to instill in Adam the desire for companionship. So God says, Adam, I have a job for you. I want you to name all the creatures that I've made. And no doubt just as Christ sovereignly had a fish swallow a coin so that when Peter threw his hook in the water, he could retrieve that coin from the fish's mouth and pay his tax. And just as the Lord Jesus had the rooster crow at just the right time, and just as he rode on a colt that had never been ridden on before, God has sovereignty over all of his creation. And just as God brought the animals into the ark, God no doubt brought the animals one by one, every type that he made, by Adam for him to name. And so there goes Mr. Giraffe. Oh, there's Mrs. Giraffe. There's Mr. Pig. There's Mrs. Pig. And God was showing him that he was incomplete. Two by two, they came. Each one had a compliment. And Adam realized he was alone. There is not found a helper suitable for him. Okay, God, what are you going to do about it? surgery, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. By the way, Sir James Simpson, who developed chloroform, got his inspiration to seek a way to put people to sleep under surgery from this text of Scripture. He thought, well, if God could put Adam to sleep before he operated on him, maybe that's what we should do with patients. Understand, before that, what would you do? You'd bite a stick, you'd chew a rag, you'd take a slug of whiskey. So he got his motivation from this text. And so we're told that he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Woman was not taken, as it's often been said, from man's head to rule over him, nor was she taken from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side, under his arm, to be protected by him and loved by him. And she's represented here as completing Adam. Since Eve is formed from Adam's side, she is bound to him, and she's obligated to be a help to him. And likewise... Adam is incomplete without Eve. She is made from him. And he is called to give her protection and affection and care. And so again, in verse 22, it says that God fashioned, you should underline or circle that word, God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought it to the man. If you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, which 
we give you if you come to meet the pastor. Out in the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew text literally reads, is brought out in the margin, you might want to underline it there, God built into a woman. God built into a woman. The Hebrew word is banah, translated here, fashioned. And it's a word that's used in Hebrew of something that is designed in a special way. It's custom designed. Eve is custom made for Adam. And so in these verses, we learn that God reveals to Adam that it was not good for him to be alone. It was not good for him to be alone. And by the way, that is one of the strongest adversatives in the Hebrew language. Loto, under no circumstances, is it good for you to be alone. And so God makes Eve, who perfectly in a custom way corresponds to him. And by the way, this is an affirmation of the equality of Eve to Adam. 1,405 years before Christ, when Moses pens this book, he is recording the full equality of a man and a woman. Now, I know in modern culture, we think, well, we've fought that up. You know, we are now affirming what man has denied for centuries. But Jewish people, all the way back in the time of Moses, understood the full equality between a man and a woman. And so we have a beautiful picture here of our first parents here in the garden. And nowhere, by the way, in Scripture does it deny the full equality between a man and a woman. Now, unfortunately, in our day, we want to affirm equality and we want to make equality sameness. And while there is equality of person before God, we are equally made in the image of God. It does not mean that we have the same roles. And so complementarianism versus egalitarianism, those are two theological terms you should know. Egalitarianism says that men and women are equal, not only in their stature before God, but in their function before God. Where complementarianism, again, it's just a catch word like Trinity, not found in the Bible, but a theological truth that God is one who exists in three persons. Complementarianism affirms that men and women are equal, but they are made in a complementary fashion because God has designed them differently with different roles. So God, having planned a bride for Adam and having prepared a bride from Adam, I want you to notice now, beginning in verse 22, God presented a bride to Adam. God presented a bride to Adam. And so the anesthetic wears off and Adam wakes up and he has something to say about it. We read in verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God brought Eve to Adam. And the verse that follows is one of the most emotional verses in the entire chapter. After Adam, through painless surgery, there's no pain, no disease, no sickness, of course, before the fall, just as there will be no pain or sickness or disease in heaven. But after his surgery, God brings Eve to Adam. She's only a couple of minutes old. And he looks up after the surgery and he says, verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You say that doesn't sound very romantic. It sounds more like this statement an anatomy professor would make. The Living Bible paraphrases it by saying, Adam exclaimed, this is it. Or today he might say, oh boy, fantastic. She's the one. She's exactly what I need. 
He was saying that she's just like me with certain improvements. She is flesh of my flesh. She is bone of my bones. Whatever he is, she is. She is fully human. He is fully human. He is fully made in the image of God. She is fully made in the image of God. He is responsible directly to God. She is responsible directly to God. And by the way, this particular text is the cornerstone principle for marriage as Adam accepted his wife by faith. Now, I've never met a person standing at the marriage altar who said, I didn't want to marry this person. They're all convinced that this is the one. And Christians might couch it in more biblical terms and say, this is the one God provided for me. And so here's Adam. He knew absolutely nothing about Eve. He never heard her speak, but he trusted God that this was God's provision for him. And when you make that decision at a marriage altar and you need to teach your children, some of us are zoning out, but our kids have been total failures in marriage. And sometimes because we haven't paid attention, we haven't taught our children these principles. We need to be faithful in season and out of season when we sit down, when we rise up, when we're at the table, to teach them the principle of God's word. And we are to teach them that when God gives them a mate, then by faith they receive that mate as a gift from God. You say, has God changed? No, he is immutable. I, the God of Israel, change not, Malachi writes. The writer of the Hebrews says he's the same, yesterday, today, and forever. God is sovereign over your life, and when he gives you a mate, you need to receive that mate is from God's hand. Now, notice what Adam says here in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish, out of man. It's a play on words. Adam is overwhelmed with the fact that God would take a part of his body and construct his wife from him. Now, while saying that, I recognize that God doesn't call everyone to be married. This is God's norm in Scripture, as he will affirm in this chapter. And again, in Genesis 3 and throughout the New Testament, God's norm is for most people to be married. But with that said, God hasn't called everyone to be married, and we need to be sensitive to that truth. Some people are set apart in a unique, special way for the plans that God has. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of an undistracted service that a single person can give to the work of the kingdom. And so Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, the chapter opens now concerning the things about which you wrote. They had written him a letter with a bunch of questions. And so starting in chapter 7 through the rest of the book, he ticks off those questions one by one. And one of their questions was in light of the persecution, in light of the fact that a lot of women were losing their husbands, was it a good thing to give your daughter to someone in marriage? And Paul said, well, you know, God's plan is for people to be married. Some people are gifted like I am. And Paul never married. Paul was single his entire life. He had a right to be married. He'll argue that in 1 Corinthians 9. But he was single. Now, this is not a spiritual gift. The gift of celibacy, as you'll see in some spiritual gift inventories. No, this is not something that God does through you. This is something that God does to you. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that a person who is single their whole life doesn't have a sex drive. They may very well, but they have the kind of sex drive that does not need to be fulfilled through a marriage relationship. And then some people are like eunuchs, Jesus said, some who are made eunuchs by men, some that God makes in that fashion. But understand that when you're single, you can give undistracted devotion to the work of the kingdom. When I was single, I would leave my apartment at 7 a.m. in the morning, and very often I'd come home at 10 or 11 at night, and at the peak of my ministry before I was married, I was leading nine different Bible studies a week apart from the large group meetings that I spoke at. Then, you know, this club that I had formed, Bachelors Till the Rapture, of which I was the only member, and as soon as I met Audrey, it was dissolved. You know, I I learned that there's another half to the whole thing. Paul says, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And by the way, that's a good thing. Your interests need to be divided, not in a worldly fashion. That's not what he's referring to contextually. But your need to give time and focus and attention to the one that God has called you to and the children that will come from your loins. So everything changed at that point in my life. The undistracted devotion was very, very different. But for most people, and by the way, we need to be careful. We need to be very careful. Some married people think it's their ministry to marry off single people. And they need to be reminded that there are some people that God has called to be single their whole life, and they're not weird or anything else. God just has a different plan for them. And some people are being harassed. When are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? Maybe never. Because God has a different plan. But for most of us, the plan is to be married. And so Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman. Now, contrary to popular opinion, the word woman does not mean woe is man. Actually, our English word comes from Anglo-Saxon. And originally the word was, she shall be called womb man, W-O-M-B, womb man, the man with the womb. But it kind of got hard to say womb man without spitting, so we dropped the M-B and we just became woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. So that's the first observation I want to make this morning. Marriage is made by God the Father. Because the father is the one who plans a bride for Adam, provides a bride from Adam, presents the bride to Adam. But there's a second observation about marriage that's made in heaven. Marriage is managed by God the Holy Spirit. Marriage is managed by God the Holy Spirit. Now, what do I mean that marriage is managed by God the Holy Spirit? Well, if you will notice verse 23, The verse is introduced with the words, the man said, and then in our English Bibles, we have some quotation marks at the beginning, at the end of the verse, indicating that this is a direct quote from Adam. But then in verse 24, there's no quotation. Why is that? Because these are not the words of Adam. These are the words of God the Holy Spirit flowing through the pen of Moses as he records this text of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is reminding us that marriage is a divine institution. Please join us tomorrow for part two of A Marriage Made in Heaven. And remember, 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program MMH020. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.